Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with a new series of videos on this channel and I hope to do this for several many more movies. Believe it or not, we are approaching this week coming up the five year anniversary of the release of Black Panther, which was one of, at that time, the biggest hits in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And one thing that I kind of regret a little bit sometimes as a critic is that I will review a movie when it comes out, and then that opinion is sort of just like, you know, frozen in time. And a lot of times we go back, we revisit movies, we change our opinions, sometimes we like them better, sometimes we don't like them as much. So I decided to start doing a series of five years later reviews where I go back, I look not only at my opinion on a movie and how it's changed, but because I've been doing this long enough, I can actually go back and look at what I said when I was working for Screen Junkies and reviewing these movies because the internet archive goes on forever and never gets erased. So we will be talking about my thoughts on Black Panther, both then and now, and obviously the whole film, sadly, is in a completely different context after the loss of Chadwick Boseman. Looking at some of the remarks that I made back in 2018, do I stand by them? Have I changed my mind? So let's get to overall thoughts, which is that this isn't a movie that I really changed my mind on a lot in general. I really, really liked it when it came out. I rewatched it in preparation for this video, and I still really, really like the movie. I think it is one of the stronger movies that Marvel has ever made, although when I reviewed the movie back in 2018, I did the spoiler review on, at that time, Screen Junkies News, alongside the talented Marquis McCarty, and I rated it a little higher then than I think I would probably rate it now. The first question that everyone always asks is, where do you rank it in the MCU? It's like, I don't know. I don't know where I rank most movies in the MCU. is like one through whatever. Mm. Uh, but I will say it is in the top tier of the four or five best that they've ever made. Now, I didn't do a full rewatch or a full reevaluation of the MCU in preparation for this video. But I would say if you're talking about MCU movies in general, Black Panther would probably still be in my top 10. If you were to add in the shows, then it would probably be a little bit outside the top 10. When you look back at then, I think I maybe overranked it by one or two based on the movies that were available at that time and kind of what I think right now. But that's something to think about when you look at reviews, especially from critics and especially from years ago, is that when we review films, it's often right off of seeing it for the first time and rarely do we get a chance to see a film for a second time. And so you miss things or you pick things up later or you reevaluate them or your feelings change a little bit and that's because it is so fresh. I, I don't remember how soon before I did this review that I saw Black Panther. I think it was a few days because uh, I didn't do the, the full non-spoiler review. But there are sometimes, for example, like with The Rise of Skywalker, which we'll probably revisit eventually on this channel, that I had to go do my review immediately after seeing the movie. And that is so hard to do. It's something I'm actually going to have to do later this week with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania to hit the embargo. So that's something to keep in mind. And another reason why I wanted to do these videos is your feelings are so subject to the first impression and time really does do so much in many ways to cement what you think about these films. So there's a lot that I want to say about Chadwick Boseman and a lot that I actually said in 2018 that I don't agree with, but I also talked about some of the other characters in the film and how they hit me upon my first impressions, and I think now that we've seen, first of all, that time has gone by with the first film and also with Black Panther Wakanda Forever now having come out, there's even more to add. For me, my favorite character, mm -hmm. not just female character, my favorite character in this movie as far as like write a movie and buy me a ticket was Denai Guerrero. I yes. loved her in this movie. Yes. And what I feel like has been kind of wasted 
with her on The Walking Dead, particularly uh-huh. recently, is she has such a presence and just a steely, just like, I will kick your ass. This is a feeling that actually still holds up. I love Denai Guerrero in that role. I love Okoye as a character and the journey that she has been on. And she's such a talented actor that you can you can really see how she's feeling. She doesn't have to do, quote unquote, a whole lot. She's able to internalize that and then externalize it for the audience. And when you look at where she's gone from the first movie to the second movie, I still do think, and I brought this up in my review for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, that she's been a little bit underserved because there are so many other characters that you have to get to, especially with the adjustments they had to do in the sequel. But there was an interesting moment in this first film when they believe that they're going to have to take the heart-shaped herb to somebody else, where Ramunda first says that Nakia should take it and then they take it to M'Baku for him to take it and to become the Black Panther. You should take it yourself. I am a spy with no army. This is why we are here. To offer this to you. And it actually tied even more for me in rewatching the first film into a scene that I felt was missing from Wakanda Forever which is a discussion of who should take the herb and who should become the Black Panther. I don't necessarily have an issue that it was Shuri, but when you see this scene now in that extra context of Wakanda Forever, and you see the fact that yes, Nakia was definitely a candidate, and M'Baku was definitely a candidate, and I think that Okoye definitely would be a candidate, that's just something that I wish they had added in, is just one scene where they all decide that it's going to be Shuri, because it would have mirrored the thought process that we had in this film, where they are having to choose potentially who should be Black Panther instead of T'Challa. Of course, nobody dreaming that it would have to be a choice that would be made in the sequel. Speaking of Shuri, and of course nobody knew that she'd be taking on the Black Panther mantle just one movie later, but I also had some positive words about her character in the first movie. How great is it that you have uh, a young, and it's like they're nailing it with between Peter Parker and Shuri, uh, a young kid who's just into science and technology and inventing things, and like it's and it's good at it, and and I and I think that's great to have a young character in a movie mm-hmm. who's not just kind of the disaffected teen or not just there to be put in danger, but is like I got this and is good at stuff that adults aren't good at. When you look back on it, Shuri was actually sort of the prototype for a lot of the characters that we've seen specifically in and around Phase Four. When we look at Kate Bishop, America Chavez, Kamala Khan, Cassie Lang, it seems like in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Riri Williams, they've all been added as young characters who have a specialty or who add to a team despite their youth. And I think that Shuri really is, along with, as I mentioned in that clip, I think Peter Parker, kind of the prototype for that in the Marvel Universe. How many times do I have to teach you? Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. You are teaching me. What do you know? Also going back to this first film and and something that retroactively you understand how important it was that it worked is the relationship between Shuri and T'Challa. And I love how close they are in this movie. The fact that Letitia Wright and, and Chadwick Boseman had such obvious chemistry. Of course, it's important for this film. You told me to strike it. You didn't say how hot. I invite you to my lab and you just kick things around. But because it worked so well, it allowed Ryan Coogler, I think, to make the adjustments and to write Black Panther Wakanda Forever the way that he did because they had such a good rapport. And so it, it both fits and is a little sad to see 
how well they get along in this first movie because you have to buy that relationship in the sequel and because of the work they do in this movie you do. It was also really interesting and, and I'd forgotten it, it's just one line but where Umbaku stood with Shuri in this movie and, and one of the big reasons why he challenges for the throne in that first act is because he doesn't like Shuri's position in Wakanda. We have watched with disgust as your technological advancements have been overseen by child. <laughs> who scoffs at tradition. They did a couple of interesting things with M'Baku in Wakanda Forever, but you know, obviously there was so much that needed to be done in that movie. His is a storyline along with Okoye's that I really do hope that they invest in just a little bit more. And specifically with M'Baku and Shuri, if you can kind of dive down into their past a little bit more. Uh, like I said, I had forgotten just how much he did not like where she was. And I think that they could actually be a really great duo in the sense of him being a, a wonderful confidant and, and sort of that role that T'Challa asked him to be. It works with the first movie, having the second one as a bridge, if you continue to play along that advancement in their relationship. Speaking of M'Baku in that Act 1 fight between him and T'Challa, now that What If is a thing, I, I know that they're going into a lot of the cosmic storylines and very big storylines, but as I was watching it, I was wondering if they did an episode like, what if M'Baku had won the challenge and taken the title of Black Panther? Or what if T'Challa had been forced to kill M'Baku? What if he had not yielded? What would have happened then? Because he plays such an important role. If he sits the throne when Killmonger shows up in Wakanda, I don't think he necessarily yields to the challenge like T'Challa does, and what is the domino effect of that? Or if T'Challa is forced to kill him in that challenge, he's not able to come to their rescue with the Jabari at the end of that battle. Do things go the other way? Do Killmonger's forces win? That's what I love about the What If series and what I loved about the comics is you can go down these lines and kind of see what was happening. The sad thing, of course, being you can't get Chadwick Boseman to come back and voice T'Challa, and I wonder if that's going to keep them from doing a lot of Black Panther-centric storylines for that show in the future. So there was a few statements I made back in 2018 in that spoiler review that I don't necessarily agree with, and a few that I do, and there was one that concerned the pacing of the movie and the tempo. I thought it was a little slow out of the gate. Um, in the third act, I thought you fell into some of those conventions of like you have to have a big fight between the, the good guy and the bad guy and the train mm. and the rhinos and the big fights. like... It's fun, but it's like, yeah, okay. Going back and watching it again, I don't really think that it is slow out of the gate. That must have just been an impression that I got the first time. I mean, the economy of the storytelling at the very beginning, the fact that they basically tell the entire history of Wakanda in 90 seconds is pretty impressive. I think it's because you don't yet know the first time you're watching it the weight of these characters and the weight of their relationship with each other. And yes, retroactively, the weight that T'Challa has in this movie, given the fact that we lose him at the beginning of the sequel, it does not play slow for me anymore at the beginning of the film, and that often happens, honestly. The first time I see a movie, I think that the first act is slow, but then when I see the entire thing, I reflect on it a little bit, and then I give it a second watch, it all kind of connects together, and those little pathways kind of unite, and that's a case where seeing a movie for a second time changes part of my opinion on it. One thing that I haven't changed my mind on is the third act. I still think that it's a little too much. The charging rhinos, I think, are not needed. I like the fact that it is not thousands of people fighting, and it is just these different factions of people in Wakanda fighting each other, and I think that that escalation was unnecessary, and the Killmonger T'Challa fight. 
I still think that the mechanics of it, it's it's a bit too weightless. You happen to have two great actors that give that fight extra meaning. But I do still think that the third act of Black Panther is a bit of a weakness in an otherwise pretty solid movie. And really, it kind of is in comparison to the other action scenes in the movie. And I had forgotten how solid those were. That opening showdown in the jungle, that really sells you on the the kind of horror that Black Panther as a figure can instill. And then the casino fight is so well choreographed. The swooping camera kind of made to look like it's one shot. Again, it doesn't have to explode and be this massive action sequence like you see at the end. It can be a little bit more constrained and still be a really good action sequence that gives our heroes a moment to shine and so that's something I think I appreciated more on this rewatch than I did in previous ones. Of course, a key player in that casino action scene is Ulysses Claw who's played by Andy Serkis and I had a few thoughts on him as well. Andy Serkis was one that is just like, it's both sides. It's like, I thought he was great. He was fantastic. He was great, but I felt like that character, mm -hmm. it felt like a bit of a remnant from Age of Ultron <laughs> where it's like we set him up mm -hmm. a few years ago and it's like, we kind of have to pay him off in this movie, but I, I did sort of also feel like, you know, he was there to kind of cackle and have fun, and then it's like, okay, he's out of the way. Let's keep Let's going with what we're on. doing. You know, I still think it's a shame that we lost Claw because I think he's a great character, but in retrospect now, I kind of get why you had to get rid of him here because it really does establish Killmonger as the main villain of the movie. And, and I think that you have to get rid of Claw at that moment in order to do that. To them, you'll just be an outsider. You're crazy to think that you could walk in there. Before we continue this five years later breakdown, I wanna thank the sponsor for this video, ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking your baggage at the airport without a luggage lock. You think your stuff is private, but you never know who's going through your underwear or something that you bought for your parents or those embarrassing personal effects that none of us ever pack in our luggage, right? You may think that you're browsing privately, but even in incognito mode, your service provider can see every website you visit. And they can even legally sell that browsing information to companies who then use that history to target you for ads. With ExpressVPN, your internet service provider can say goodbye to accessing your online activity because your identity is now completely anonymous using a secure VPN service, plus your data is encrypted for maximum protection. ExpressVPN is incredibly easy to use. All you have to do is open the app and push one button to get things started, and it works on phones, laptops, and even routers. I am here traveling in this hotel room. You're gonna see two or three more videos from me sitting right here. And it brings me so much peace of mind to know that I've got ExpressVPN enabled on my computer. So when I'm on the Wi-Fi at a hotel or at an airport, I know that my information and my browsing data is safe. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash Merle today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Merle, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash Merle. Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. I want to talk a little bit more about Michael B. Jordan because I didn't talk about him a whole lot in that spoiler review. One thing that I always forget is that he's in that one scene in the museum near the very beginning of the movie and then you don't really see him at all for the next hour of the film. And even though I've seen Black Panther a number of times at this point, I always forget that Killmonger is very much only in the back part of the movie and I think it's because of the confidence that Michael B. Jordan has in that role and just the the aura that he brings to that character. I found my daddy with panther claws in his chest. You ain't the son of a king, you're a son of a murderer. Who y'all gonna see, son? 
When we talk about all of the Oscar wins that Black Panther had, Ludwig Gordonson won for score, Ruthie Carter's costume design won, uh, Hannah Beachler and Jay Hart's production design won. It seems like Angela Bassett is in line to win the first Academy Award, acting Academy Award for a Marvel film this year for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. But as I look back at his performance, I think that Michael B. Jordan should have been nominated five years ago for Best Supporting Actor. And actually, I went back and I looked at all of the nominees that year. I would have knocked all of them, save for Mahershala Ali, out of that race entirely in favor of Michael B. Jordan. And this is a case where I think even looking back at awards five years later, things like Sam Rockwell's George W. Bush from Vice, I mean, that's a movie that really hasn't had much lasting impact at all. And people still talk about Michael B. Jordan's performance in this film. I think that if you were to re-nominate for the Oscars today, Michael B. Jordan would deservedly be up for Best Supporting Actor. These items aren't for sale. How do you think your ancestors got these? You think they paid a fair price? Or did they take it like they took everything else? Knowing what we know now, a part of me does wish that Killmonger was still alive, that he was still in play in the Marvel Universe. But at the same time, his death is handled so powerfully in this movie that it's hard for me to say that they should have kept him alive. And spoilers here for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, if you haven't seen it, I don't wanna give away any of the surprises, so you've been warned. But the scene with Killmonger in the ancestral plane in Wakanda Forever feeds into this movie so well and tells you so much about his character versus Shuri's character that it is kind of meaningful that he is there and not in the actual real world. When you look at that shot of Killmonger burning the heart-shaped herb, that is mirrored in Shuri's vision in the sequel. And really, when you think about it, they both have goals and, and motivations that would burn down a lot of the traditions and the meaning of Black Panther. And they're both tied to vengeance. And Shuri is able to resist that call to vengeance. And I think that's why she doesn't end up in many ways like Killmonger, or perhaps even more of a threat to the world overall than Killmonger was. And they, they actually mirror, as much as Shuri and T'Challa mirror each other, Killmonger and Shuri also mirror each other quite significantly in both films. And so it does actually kind of work that he dies in this first movie in order to set that up in the second. And it was one of my favorite parts of Wakanda Forever. And even when you look at T'Challa's visions in the ancestral plane versus Killmonger's versus Shuri's, Killmonger sees his father, T'Challa sees his father, Shuri sees Killmonger, all of them speak to the ideologies and the goals and the origins of each of those individuals as they're taking on the mantle of the Black Panther. It is tough to see things, though, like T'Challa in the ancestral plane, because we know now that Chadwick Boseman would not get another Black Panther film and that the character would be there basically at the beginning of the next movie. And even the very opening scenes of this film, which are covering the death of T'Chaka, we basically have in both Black Panther films a scene that deals with the death of the King of Wakanda and the characters being absolutely devastated by that. And obviously it's not by design. And that's just one of those things that, you know, you wish things could be different. But it also does in some ways make parts of this movie more poignant than they would have been even if things had transpired differently. The time has come for you to come home and be reunited with me. There was one thing regarding Chadwick Boseman, actually, that I disagree with the most by far of anything that I said five years ago. And, you know, I don't go back and rewatch my reviews generally. So when I heard myself say it, I was actually kind of surprised. I didn't really fault Chadwick Boseman. I thought that his performance was great, but I felt also that 
in a weird kind of way, for me, Black Panther was kind of the least interesting character in the movie. I was so much more invested in everyone around him. This this could have been a little more Black Panther centric in the sense of just like he was he's like the sixth or seventh thing that I think about when I think about what I loved about this movie. It's like, oh Killmonger's great and the plan's great and all this stuff. It's like, oh and Chad Chad Bozeman was good too. That is definitely a huge shift in my opinion since seeing the movie for the first time. And I think it's because, and again, keeping in mind it's a first-time watch, is that the other characters in this film are flashier. Uh, They're bigger, for lack of a better word. Um, And they're all also great, whereas so much of Chadwick Boseman's performance is wrapped up in maintaining control and trying to right the wrongs and that sort of steadfast commitment to justice and even wrestling with his own ideals and everything that he thought was right turns out to be wrong. And he's not big like a lot of the other characters are. And I think that's why upon first glance, I said, oh, well, he's the sixth or seventh most interesting person. He's actually doing some great work in this movie. What happened to him? I promised the king to say nothing. I am your king now! And I think that's the price of playing a character who is written and then interpreted in a less flashy way is that you run the risk of being initially overshadowed by the people that get to go a little bigger. But, you know, especially with kind of an eye towards these things when I was rewatching this time. I appreciated just the subtle moments, even the subtle moments of humor, uh, the, the the flashes of anger, but even more so the times where he's just letting it all stay below the surface. Uh, you know, obviously with Chadwick Boseman not being with us anymore, you, you do tend to analyze what he's doing a little bit more and remember it more fondly because we don't get any more of it. But I also think that it's just his approach to the character, both his approach and Ryan Coogler's approach. And it's something that I have grown to appreciate more over time. We let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. No more. So the last couple things that we mentioned are are, are a little bit more fun in that, you know, again, in a vacuum, this review was shot before Black Panther came out. And so we didn't even really know just how big this movie was going to be. We're filming this the day before the movie comes out, but we'll probably know this weekend how it how it does. I mean, financially, Whoa. it's going to be everything that we're reading is going to be a huge opening. And it's kind of comical at this point because now we know, of course, that Black Panther was the sixth highest grossing or is currently the sixth highest grossing movie of all time. At one point, it was as high as number three behind Avatar and The Force Awakens. It's still the best February opening of all time. It was, at that time, the fifth best opening weekend ever. We were standing on the cusp of a cultural moment that nobody really could fully appreciate the magnitude of in that moment and I think that was that came out on like the Friday morning that Black Panther came out it's just so interesting to see myself uh, kind of like looking into this void and not being able to really see what was going to happen and then you understand in retrospect just how big of a moment it actually was and not just for Black Panther but for the MCU it's going to explode the universe yeah in the good way in a good way yeah you don't want to explode the universe in a bad way no that's, well that might happen in infinity war who knows that's next hey everybody <laughs> dies that's what i call that movie yeah you think everybody that's gonna dies. be the just the blanket just like we're gonna everybody dies and then we're gonna get a reality wipe and that's another really interesting thing that this interview took me back to was this time before we knew what was going to happen in infinity war and everybody was speculating and you know now that we know what happens 
Of course, it seems obvious that you're going to have the snap and the blip and everything that we just referred to, you know, as if it's old hat. But this did take me back to a time when we were all like, oh, what's going to happen? I mean, we know what happens in the comic books, but they can't do that because what are they going to do after that? It's just the speculation and that time. I miss it a little bit, and I think that that's what Marvel's been missing lately in the last couple years is that real kind of like antsiness to know oh what's going to happen next perhaps with this new film and Kang and everything we'll get back to that but it, it was an interesting time to revisit as I was going back over this review so overall I mean yeah I think that Black Panther really really does hold up and I think it is in that top cut of MCU films even if I wouldn't put it in the top three or four as I said back then of course a lot more movies and TV shows have come out since then I think that there's a criticism that I would make but it's not of the choices they made in this movie it's kind of where the story had to go of course some of it by necessity but I I like the direction they went at the end of this film where they're opening Wakanda up and he's going to share their technology with the rest of the world and they're going to appreciate just the 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 majesty and the advanced technology of Wakanda and then when we get to Wakanda forever you know, for whatever reasons those storytelling decisions were made, we're kind of back to a point where Wakanda is closed and it's Wakanda against the world. I hope that they're able to find their way back to where they were at the end of this movie because I I liked the idea and and maybe it's because I like this sort of optimistic view of the world where Wakanda could open themselves up and it would be accepted and wouldn't be weaponized against them. But that's sort of the direction that the MCU is going right now is, you know, everybody's going to be fighting each other, Um, you know. Again, we're we're looking back five years later. Perhaps it was overly optimistic to think that the story would go that way, but I kind of wish that it had, and I don't know how much of it was tied into the original plan for the film versus just the change in outlook and the change in the real world and everything else in the last five years. But, you know, I I would like to think that we can get back to a point where that storyline would be believable and that Wakanda could share what they have with the rest of the world and it wouldn't be turned against them. So those are my thoughts looking back on Black Panther five years later. As I said, I've got several of these lined up and a lot of reviews that I probably don't agree with that are in the hopper as well. And I look forward to revisiting those films and my thoughts on them. What do you think? Are there any movies coming up that are celebrating a five-year anniversary that you'd like to see me take on and reevaluate? There are many, like for example, Get Out and The Last Jedi that are over five years old, but that I may go back to at some point because those two in particular are ones that I'd like to revisit my thoughts on because uh, they have changed mightily from the first time that I saw those films. Thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this show, and thank you again for spending part of your time here with me. I'll be back very soon with more box office news, reviews, and more. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.